All right, like I said, um, uh, we have some membership books in the back. If you want to know more about what Redeemer Church is about uh, and kind of how this membership process works, be sure to check that out. Uh, this part of it is, is kind of the final part. Well, Brian, the, the next final part will be when we get up in the baptistry. But uh, anyway, the, the, one of the last stages is just simply answering the membership questions. And so I'll ask you these five questions, which you've already seen. They're in the membership booklet. And, um, and then I'll pray and we'll have a seat. Um, so Brian and Olivia, do you acknowledge yourself as a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, except in his sovereign mercy? If so, answer, I do. And do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of God and savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for the salvation as he is offered in the gospel? And do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? I do. And do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? I do. All right, and finally, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to commit yourself to its purity and peace? I do. Excellent. All right, uh, members of Redeemer Church, would you please stand? All right. Redeemer Church, will you, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, seek to love, encourage, teach, admonish, comfort, and exhort these new members with a genuine desire to see each one grow in the knowledge of Christ and His Word? If so, answer, we do. We do. You may be seated. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for this sweet and precious couple. Um, they have come to Redeemer Church after uh, a brief time away in Arkansas. They've returned to us, and what a, a sweet thing it is to have them back. Uh, Lord, would you bless them here in this church? Would you conform them to the image of your Son? In the high times and low, low times, would they be drawn towards you, and even in the ordinary times? Uh, and would you use this church and all the members and the gifts that you've given us uh, to bless them and grow them in the faith? And Lord, we also pray, knowing that you have uh, gifted Brian and Olivia uh, with gifts for the edification of your church, and would you use those gifts here that we might be blessed by them? And so, Lord, we pray that you would do a work in their lives and our lives as well through them. And so, Lord, we thank you for this sweet, precious gift from you. In Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. This week. I believe we're on the 24th question of the New City Catechism. I will read the question and we will respond together. Why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. The reference for this 24th Catechism comes from Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And I just want to read that before we pray. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's pray. Father, we are an undeserving people. Lord, your word says that we were hostile 
in mind, doing evil deeds, and even worse, Lord, we were alienated from you. And Father, I could think of no worse thing for a person than to be alienated from the creator of heavens and the earth. And I just thank you, Lord, that you provided a way through the death and resurrection of your son Jesus for us to now be in fellowship for all eternity with you, Lord. Undeserving as we may be, Lord, in your great mercy and grace, you provided that way. And I just thank you. Thank you for each person here. I just pray that we as a church would live, Father, uh, walking in that truth, knowing who you are, and uh, Father, calling you by name as our Father and Savior, God. Uh, we just thank you. Help us to understand more and more each day just how great your mercy and grace truly is and that uh, our lives would reflect that uh, as we interact daily. Uh, many of us in this town, some are visiting. Uh, wherever we find ourselves, Lord, I pray that we would be about your work, uh, working diligently, Lord, to show your love, your patience, your kindness, your truth uh, to all those around us, Father, so that they may see uh, you in our actions and in our lives. Lord, we pray for uh, those that will be baptized this morning, for Brian, uh, for Kate. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your mercies, for that symbol, Father, of death, burial, and resurrection, and cleansing, Father. Um, and Jesus observed that practice himself with John the Baptist, baptizing him, uh, as he said must happen, Father. And just thank you for that, uh, and pray for blessing, and that we as a church would support and love um, each other uh, as members and just as fellow believers in Christ. Uh, bless Kevin as he preaches this morning. Uh, we just thank you for, again, Lord, for loving us more uh, than we deserve. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our scripture this morning is from Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Joel chapter 2. Verses 1 through 17. This is the word of God. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with rumbling of chariots, they leap on the top of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who execute, executes his word is powerful, 
for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return with, to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Um, I'm sure you all know the name uh, Harry Truman, but when you hear that name, you probably think of Harry S. Truman the 33rd president. I want to talk today about Harry R. Truman. I don't know if any of y'all might know who that guy is. Uh, he became famous. Well, he was the owner of Mount St. Helens Lodge. That might be a little bit of a clue who this guy is. He became famous for refusing to leave the area when the mountain was showing every sign that it was about to explode. Uh, he was in his 80s at the time, and he was, he was a bit of a colorful character, so he was given these uh, kind of interesting interviews, and he would say things like this. He'd say, I don't have any idea whether it'll blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. If this mountain goes, I'm going with it. This area is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is in between me and the mountain. The mountain is a mile away. The mountain ain't going to hurt me. And then uh, he had some geologists coming up talking to him uh, about this, and this is, my, this is my favorite quote he had. He said, the mountain is shot and it hasn't hurt my place a bit. But those blank geologists with their hair down to their butts wouldn't pay no attention to old Truman. <laughs> I feel like that's where I'm going in like 40 years. So I really identify with him. Uh, so, spoiler alert, uh, the mountain did explode. Uh, and, uh, and he appeared not to make it. And they said that he probably died of pyroclastic flow, which like heat shock. So he was probably immediately vaporized when the uh, mountain exploded. And, and you can imagine the, the frustration that his family and friends might have had. Just like, come on, just, they're probably trying to trick him. We're just going to go on vacation or just trying to get him just to come down. But, you know, I think he chose to not leave the mountain because he thought it wouldn't hurt him. But I think he chose not to believe the mountain would hurt him because he didn't want to believe it. He didn't want to leave. And so he just didn't pay any attention to all of the warnings that he got. And, and, and what we want to be true and what we believe to be true are often mingled and probably more mingled than we realize. So in, in other words, we often believe what we want to believe, and we can become numb to the things that are actually true that we should believe. And, and when we think about the prophets in the Old Testament, we might picture them, you know, warning uh, about God's judgment to come, you know, repent, the time is nigh. Uh, and from time to time, we might see modern-day prophets around with their signs that say repent or, or saying that the coming day of judgment is near. Uh, several years ago, I, was at a, uh, I went to an LSU game, and there were some people standing outside the entrance of the stadium, 
and they had some signs. I can't remember exactly what they said, but it was something about hell and God's judgment and all that. Uh, and I was slightly annoyed by it. I, I was, um, but it wasn't because I was against evangelism. I was in my early 20s, and, and I was involved in evangelistic ministry, and so I was all for evangelism. But I just thought these guys out there with these signs, I was just like, this is not the way to go about it. And so I went over to talk to one of the guys, and, and he was about my age. Um, and, uh, and anyway, I, I was kind of surprised because I, I kind of expected him to be a, a bit obnoxious or maybe a bit combative. You know, probably going to say I'm not a Christian or something. Um, but when I talked to him, um, I, I was surprised because he seemed very reasonable. He didn't seem like a crazy person. And he, and he said this. He said, look, I, I just believe this is true. I think God's judgment is real. It's going to happen. And I think people just go about their days and they never think about it. And at least for a moment now, they're going to think about what, what true reality is. And I remember feeling like, well, I was wanting to argue, but I wasn't prepared for you to make a better argument than, than me. And so I remember just kind of walking away and said, okay, cool. You know, just kind of moved on to uh, go see. You'll be glad to know. Probably, I think Ole Miss probably lost to LSU that day. So uh, anyway, so, but moving on. But it made me think, you know, I wanted to critique the way they were going about things. But, but this person just wanted people to be aware of what all Christians say they believe, is that ultimately there will be a day of judgment that is coming. And if you are not in Christ, then that day will be terrifying. And so let me ask you this, just to have you think for a moment. Have you ever warned somebody about God? I mean, we talk a lot about evangelism, about sharing the gospel, God's grace, God's love, but have you ever warned somebody about God that God would be terrifying should they meet them outside of Christ? And, and I wonder where my allergy to giving warnings comes from about God. You know, Moses did it. Jesus did it. Paul did it. Why am I too sophisticated to do something like that? I think I'm often more concerned about what people think about me um, than, than whether or not their soul might be in danger. So, so maybe I should be less judgmental towards those who don't share my weakness and are unafraid to proclaim that God's judgment is real and it's coming. And, and look, and I should probably add, we have some crazy people that come to Mississippi State's campus. <laughs> even, even as I'm saying, we shouldn't, like there, there's some weird ways to do it. I'm acknowledging that. But the idea of, of making God's judgment known, that's just a biblical thing that we see in the Old and the New Testament. So, so here's what we're doing today. We're, we're going through the, the minor prophets this summer. So there's 12 minor prophets. Uh, Daniel taught on Hosea last week, and we're in Joel this week. And th this is somewhat of a challenge of, of how to go about teaching it. You know, do I isolate a, a, you know, a one important part or kind of go through the whole thing? And so it'll probably be different week to week, d depending on, on the book that we're in. But here's how I want to approach um, the book of Joel today. So first... I want to go through the, the whole book and kind of get an over, overall idea of, of the message and the theme of, of Joel. And second, I want to consider how Joel's message relates to the New Testament. And then third, uh, I want to bring this message of Joel all the way home to today, to our lives. So first, let's go through a bit of an outline of Joel. Let's kind of walk through Joel together. Now, in chapter 1, we read about locusts devouring the land. And I, like, as we, when we go through the minor prophets, you know, even for people who have been around the church for a while, this can kind of be the dark side of the moon. I don't know what y'all think about when you think about uh, Joel. I think about locusts. Somewhere I read through this and that kind of popped out. It's kind of bizarre. But in chapter 1, verse 4, we read this. 
What the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So there's this thing going on in Israel during this time where locusts came in and they devoured the land. Now, one reason this happened is we know in Deuteronomy 28, if you, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but in Deuteronomy 28, you see this list of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And so God was giving his people land, and he said, if you obey me, there'll be these blessings. If you disobey me, there's going to be these curses. One of the curses in, ch- in chapter 28, verse 38, was about locusts. And it says this, it says, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locusts shall consume it. So when the people disobeyed God's commands, the locusts devoured the land as God had promised. Okay? So then in chapter 2, we see Joel warn about the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is God's judgment. And he was referring to this locust part as God's judgment, but then he was also referring to a future army that would come and devour them, much like the locust did, kind of comparing the, the two. So there was past judgment, and there was a future judgment to come. And so Joel is warning them of this future day of the Lord. But we also see Joel tell them that there is a way of escape. In chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, we read this. It says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relents over disaster. So there is a way for them to escape. They've had God's judgment. Future judgment is to come. There is a way for them to escape that future judgment, and it's by returning to the Lord, or to use another word, repentance. And in, in the Old Testament, one of the, the signs that people would give of repentance would be that they would, they would tear their, their garments. They would, they would tear their clothes. And what he says here is he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. So there's a type of repentance that's just kind of external, that that gives the look of it. And then there's something that's real. And look, all of us have been there, right? In in some way or another, you know, maybe you're in a fight with your spouse, you're like, sorry. (laughs) It's like, feels like that didn't count, right? Uh, And then there's just just genuine, just like, I'm I'm shocked that I said or did such a thing. Please forgive me. I, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe... I did that. And it's, it's from the heart. And you're w- trying to find words. And it's just different. And, and we can all, there's no spiritual gift for this. You can tell something's from the heart or something's just external. And what we're seeing about our God is he cares about the heart. And now in the scriptures, he gives us ways to carry out these things, but he wants it to begin with the heart. But what we do is, well, don't worry about the heart. Just do the external thing and you're good. And he's saying, no, you're not good. From the heart is where is what God cares about. We see this in Psalm 51, 16. It says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So what Joel's talking about here is not going through the external motions of what repentance or returning to the Lord might look like. Don't, don't even worry about tearing your clothes. What I'm worried about is the heart. If they repent from their heart, then they will be spared this upcoming disaster, the the day of the Lord that will come to them if they don't repent. 
So, so Joel calls the people to repentance. But with that in mind, he tells us this about God in chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So the Lord, Yahweh, became jealous for his land and took pity on his people. God, God had, had delivered the people from Egypt. He'd promised their forefather Abraham this land. He was giving them this land. He put them in this land. They turned from him, and the curses that he promised came on that land. And when it says that he was jealous for the land, it doesn't mean we, we think of jealous differently than, than the terms used here. It means more of a zeal to, prolet, to protect what belongs to you. And so he wanted this land and this people restored back to him. He was jealous for it. And in that, he had pity on his people. The, the, the land had been devoured in his judgment, and his people, though guilty, are suffering. And he has pity on them. God would rather them be glad and rejoice and not suffer. And so we read this in chapter 2, verse 25 and 26. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper and the destroyer and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. Yahweh takes pity on the misery of his people, and he wants to restore them. So he pleads with them to return to him so that he can restore them. And then we even see a hint of the new covenant uh, at the end of chapter 2. It's later quoted in Acts. It's just God's redemptive purposes and plans. And, and if you'll remember last year, we went through Lamentations. And, and the way that Hebrew poetry works is, is the main point. Like a lot of times we, if we're reading a letter or writing a story, like the high point comes at the end, right? That's kind of the, the climax. But in Hebrew poetry, the climax, the main point is in the middle. And so Lamentations is this book after, after Jeremiah, after the, the people have been exiled into Babylon. And so the, the high point of the book of Lamentations is uh, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33. And you know what we read there? This is the book about them lamenting over the destruction that's come on them from turning from God. They've been exiled into Babylon. And we read this about our God. It says that he does not afflict from his heart. That means that he is predisposed to bless. He's spring-loaded to show kindness and mercy, but has to be provoked in order to afflict. So his posture towards Israel is open arms saying, please return to me that this disaster will not come on you. And we see that all who turn to God will be saved. In Joel 2.32, we read what Paul would later quote, in Romans 10, where he says this, he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. From the Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. He says here, All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul repeats that again in Romans 10. But, but God will not only pardon those who turn to him, he will also execute judgment on the nations that chose to afflict his people. This is what we see in Joel chapter 3. And in the last verse of the book of Joel, we read about God's judgment on those who afflicted his people. He says this, I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So he will ultimately judge those who harmed his people. So, so the outline, the main idea of Joel is this. One, God's judgment has come and will come. 
And two, repent and he will restore you. Now, you should know that we're not under the terms of the old covenant. We are not Israel. We have not been promised land with conditions. We are living during the age of the new covenant, not the old covenant. So things are different. So in some ways, Joel's message does not apply to us. But we do see several parallels to these themes that we see in Joel in the New Testament. So let me move and talk a little bit about Joel in the New Testament. Like I said, there's some parallels to what we see in Joel and what we see in the New Testament. I want to mention briefly four things. First, there are warnings. Second, there's calls to repentance. Third, there's the way of salvation. Fourth, there's God's judgment. So I'm going to briefly touch on each one. First, we're not under the old covenant, living in the land that God gave us with conditions. So the specific warning about the locusts does not apply to us. But the warnings still remain. For example, in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And we also read in Luke 16 about Jesus sharing the story about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man ended up in Hades or hell, and Lazarus ended up in, in, with the Lord in, in heaven. And, and during that whole time, the rich man is suffering. He says, if you, could just, if you could just drop water on my tongue, if you could just, just a drop of water on my tongue, that would be incredible. And so he's suffering there while Lazarus is not. And then the, the rich man says this, says, could you, could, you send, could you send me back to tell my family about this judgment that is to come? And then Jesus kind of famously says, he says, like, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe, which we know is true from the resurrection. People still didn't believe. So let me ask you this. Have you ever warned anyone about God? Now, that's an odd way to put it. It's odd for us as Americans in 2021. It's not odd for the scriptures. And we are products of our time. Or we don't want to... We don't want to rock the boat. Uh, we don't want to make people think we're, we're one of those weirdos with signs about hell and God's judgment. But have you ever warned anyone about God? Second, the locust invasion was a call to repentance. And, and look, actually, all disasters are a call to repentance. Not necessarily God's judgment, but calls to repentance nonetheless. So this disaster happened with the locusts, and it was God's judgment, and it was a warning about a judgment to come. But I think there's a sense in which we should understand all disasters that happen as signs of God's judgment to come. So if you were to turn to Luke 13, Luke 13, 1 through 3, Jesus addresses this issue. So here's what's going on in Luke 13. So some people ask him, there were some uh, people that went to go make sacrifices, Right? And so they're going to make these sacrifices, and, um, and the, uh, uh, the, the, the Caesar at the time, he kills them, and he mixes their blood with the blood of the sacrifice that they're making. And so somebody asked Jesus about this, and here's what he says. He says, there were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He says, no, they were not worse sinners because they suffered like this. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It almost seems like Jesus needs a PR guy. Like, hey, you should be softer there, right? But no, he says, no, 
They, they weren't worse sinners, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Then he brings up another situation. Are those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Again, no. Those suffering under these disasters, they were not worse sinners. That's not why this happened. But he says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, when something terrible happens, when, when, when a crisis, when a plague, when te- uh, a, natural, a hurricane, earthquake, whatever, if someone were to say, is this because they were worse sinners? I think Jesus' answer is, is no. But the warning remains. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Third, God's judgment can be escaped by simply calling on the name of the Lord. What Joel said in chapter 2 is repeated by Paul in Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fourth, those who refuse to repent and call on the name of the Lord, they should expect God's judgment. In the end, there will be a sorting out. All people will be in one or two places. They will be suffering in hell or they will be happy in the kingdom of God forever. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 40 to 43. He says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out his, of his kingdom all calls of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Many will repent and call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Some will not. They will be like Harry R. Truman. They will live their life on a mountain that is about to explode. And they will either not know of what is to come or they will choose to ignore the warnings that at any moment the mountain can explode and they will face the terror of God's judgment with no chance to escape it. Now, finally, what does the book of Joel mean for us today? I just want to close out with two things for us to consider from this book. One, we should examine ourselves. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27, says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I would compare this to what Joel said earlier about renting their hearts, not their garments. A person can affirm the gospel message. They can go to church. They cannot drink or cuss or smoke, but never have their hearts reach repentance towards God. They've just kind of been in the motion of it all. They grew up in in Mississippi. They grew up in the church. They never really decided not to be a Christian. They just kind of got caught in the current of Christianity, but maybe they have not repented. To be a Christian means that you have believed the gospel, that you've repented from your sins. Don't just assume you're a Christian because you grew up in the church or or because you made a a one-time decision. It's like Martin Luther said, repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's a life of repentance. The second thing I think the book of Joel calls us to today is that we should warn others. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And look, we can, as Charles Spurgeon said, we can no more convert a person than we can create a star. But what we can do, what we're called to do, and what we must do 
is to warn others about the day of the Lord, of God's judgment. The world stands at the foot of a mountain that is about to explode with God's judgment, with the day of the Lord. Our God is a consuming fire, as we read in Hebrews 12. But he stands ready to pardon and forgive all who would return to him, who would believe the gospel that Christ took their punishment for sins and that his righteousness would be credited to them, all who would, who would believe. And look, in case there's any, any uncertainty about how the gospel works, our sin, for those who would believe, our sin is transferred to Jesus. God's judgment is, is laid out in full. The full payment for your sins is unleashed on Christ. And more than that, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, is given to us. And so if you, even as I talk about these things, I, I worry that some of you with a tender conscience might, who, like, like I, I've, I found myself in this place a lot, but might hear these types of things and might think, I'm not a Christian. Look, the gospel is simple. There's Christ paid for your sins. He gives you his righteousness. You believe that, you turn from your sins, and that is the good news. And what we read about in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 is offering this to us. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Look, it's not his heart to afflict. It's his heart to show mercy. That's good news. And let me close in saying this. From, as Richard Sibb said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. He stands ready to abundantly pardon. So would you turn to him? If you haven't, would you turn to him that you might escape his judgment? Because as he said, he will abundantly pardon all who do so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for preserving your word for us that we might know you. And you gave your prophet Joel this message. And you gave us this message that we might know our God, that our God is a God of judgment. That would be terrifying to meet without mercy. But you have made a way that we might know you and your mercy and kindness through the finished work of Christ. And so would you uh, have us to rest in the gospel that you have accomplished our salvation for us? And would you give us courage uh, and really care and love for others enough to warn about the judgment that is to come? In Jesus, in your name that we pray, amen.